This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Hamilton's Amazon headquarters bid came in under the original target bid of about 500000 bucks. Uh, the bid did attract 175000 in outside support. To talk about this whole process, Marvin Ryder is with us, a business professor at a group school of business, McMaster University, and he's on the line with us now. Marvin, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Now, my, my pleasure. Now, was this a cowbell that you broke? This, Marvin, was, you know, I, I'm thinking this is just some uh, marvelous piece of Canadian engineering, probably done in some fabricating shop somewhere. But picture yourself a cowbell, but it's the size of like a large Tim and coffee cup. Oh my. And then a handle on the end and even on the end of this and this is why I'm thinking it's Canadian. It has a bottle opener. We're we're just lucky you're with us here today. It sounds like your shrapnel <laughs> could have spread far and wide when this thing went. I'm 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 jangling this thing, you know, like a banshee after a goal, then all of a sudden it stops and then I realize that the ball bearing in it which is about the size of a marble, to- metal Yes. Is gone. Imagine if that had hit somebody. Exactly. My goodness, only the kids would have survived because they have helmets. But uh, Lawsuits. Lawsuits everywhere. <laughs> exactly. So from now, it's just become, uh, you know, I just take a stick, a mini stick, and I bash the thing like I'm, you know, in a band. Dong, dong, dong. That's that's it for me, Marvin. Well, I see I see you and Lady Gaga doing uh, something in the future. <laughs> you never know. Uh, all right, let's talk about uh, the Amazon bid. Yes. Uh, Amazon, as uh, the hashtag goes. Uh, let's first talk about... Who would have paid for this? Who, you know, how do how do they divide up, and, and how did they arrive at the uh, potentially five hundred thousand dollar bid, which I guess just came in a little under that? Right, came in at four hundred sixty-seven thousand dollars, and I can tell you, before since I knew I was chatting with you, I went online and was searching out other bids. Two hundred thirty-eight cities submitted bids. Uh, the cheapest bid came in at ten thousand dollars in terms of cost, and that's because they spent ninety-eight hundred dollars on a promotional video. Uh, other bids uh, were in that ballpark in terms of their professional development. Although some bids came with other str- strings attached to them, Newark, New Jersey, offered uh, Amazon seven billion dollars of incentives to build a five billion dollar headquarters. That's a pretty good deal. <laughs> you sort of head two billion dollars when you're done here. So our four hundred sixty-seven in the right ballpark. Where did it go? Well, the biggest chunk of this went to get some professional help and they went to PricewaterhouseCoopers, could have gone to any of the big accounting firms to get all the facts and figures they wanted put in there. They also hired an advertising agency, that was another $110,000. And I think an interesting footnote, there was some music used from a band called Monster Truck and of course they have to be compensated when you use their recognizable uh, names. Mm. The flip side of this is uh, while uh, 467000 was spent, the hope was that 250000 would come from the city and the other 250000 would come from the private sector. hasn't quite worked out that way. They've raised 175000 and I think there's some interesting people who've contributed, both the Niagara Region Economic Development Department and the Burlington Economic Development Department each contributed 25000 because remember that Hamilton's bid was not strictly Hamilton. It was a regional bid, and right. so it makes sense our regional partners contributed something. Um, Hamilton International Airport contributed $40,000. $10,000 from Leuna, the Laborers International Union, is doing so much construction in our area. McMaster kicked in 25000 as did a housing developer called Move and Go, uh, and this is why you're 175. Now they're hoping still they can raise another forty to fifty thousand dollars from some other partners, even though the bid has been submitted. Uh, there are some names that are noticeably absent from that list. For instance, I don't see Mohawk College there. I, I don't happen to see uh, uh, say anything from the Port Authority. There. What would be the reason for contributing at this point if the bid's already submitted? Well, just just to be part of the community contribution, right. uh, you know, to say that I 
I supported this and where it went. Right. Um, so this is all consistent. Now, when you start thinking about this, Scott, 238 bids, if each of the bids cost on the order of four hundred, four hundred and fifty thousand dollars just bidding for the Amazon headquarters has generated $100 million in economic activity. Hmm. That's interesting. Hmm. So, you know, <laughs> something is a one-time thing only, but $100 million, that's what this lottery is costing people. And I think what's happening as well is the short list of who's the finalist, the top eight or ten, isn't going to be announced until 2018. And God bless, the press are getting antsy. You know, why don't we have this list? Why don't we have it now? And so I've noticed across the country, people are diving deeper into all the bids. Some cities are making them public. Some are not. Amazon has said people are welcome to make their parts of the bid public. What they can't make public is any private information about Amazon, competitive information. And so you're getting quite a mixed bag. There are some cities that have opened the kimono and showed you everything, others who are keeping quite a tight lip on things. Uh, uh, that being said, there are other reasons for this exercise over and beyond right. the winning ticket. Yes? Right. So, I mean, the justification for this, look, again, the odds. You've got a 1 in 238 chance. That's less than a 1% chance of being successful. You, you know, it's like buying any lottery ticket. The odds are really stacked against you that you're going to win the big prize. So the argument for going through this exercise, though, was to update the various promotional uh, materials of the city of Hamilton so that as they bid for other things, whether it would be a sporting event or if we're bidding for businesses, that we've got current up-to-date material. We've got all the facts and figures at our fingertips and then we can share that with people uh, as they're looking around. So if, you know, if, uh, let's say, uh, uh, last week uh, on, let me think of this, was Saturday, I guess it was, uh, Premier Wynn was in Hong Kong, and a company called Johnson Electric announced that they wanted to build a plant in the greater Toronto and Hamilton area, $325 million factory, going to create 300 jobs. If they now start to come looking and saying, well, should we site in Hamilton or Burlington or Oakville or wherever it happens to be, we've got up-to-date materials to give them. So there will be a return on this investment, even if we do not win the big Amazon lottery. Will others look at these bids beyond the people at Amazon and say, hey, this is pretty impressive. Let's look at this city. We never thought of this. Yeah, my feeling is no. I don't think Amazon is going to share uh, all, all that people. research. Yeah, I don't think they're going to share all of the bids. Now, having said that to you, if you were to make the top 20, let's just make up a number here, 15, 20, whatever they announce at the short list, chances are that would cause people to look because I guarantee you some names on that list would come as a shocker to you. To give you an example, I think a name that might be on that short list is Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas, capital of Texas, that's the capital city of Texas, but you know, tends to be forgotten in all the political chatter about Houston and Dallas and their bigger counterparts. If that name were to show up, I guarantee you people would take a second look. And again, if Hamilton was on that list, or even if Ottawa was on that list, people would say, oh, I thought that was just, just a political place. You mean we can put businesses there? So if you get on the short list, there might still be a return on the investment, even if you don't win. So what is in it, and lots of, ske- uh, of skeptics would question, what's in it for the people who contribute to this bid for Hamilton? I think it's just about being part of the community, a community support network. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Mayor Eisenberger uh, asked 
the leaders of all of our major institutions. Remember that Hamilton is more and more today not about the private sector but the public sector. So he got the heads of the two hospitals, the college, the university, others, and said, let's, let's have a little coordinating powwow here. How can we leverage all of these assets to attract more business and help out in the city? And the leaders of, of these institutions were more than glad to, to sit there and, and talk about these things. Now here's an example where they might be putting a little money where their mouth is. Again, I, I know people will say, well, if you have an extra $25,000, McMaster University, why don't you reduce my child's tuition? But again, when you're talking about an institution who has a, a half a billion dollar budget, $25,000 is sort of the water bill for one day. Mm -hmm. It's not really that much, but to be seen as part of the solution, contributing to the community, that's why these organizations went. I am surprised only one private land developer, and, and I'm not familiar with move and go at all, I can think of some other big land developers in the city. I'm just kind of surprised they haven't shipped in some money because, again, if we get this headquarters, not only is there the construction of the headquarters, but with 50,000 well-paying jobs, those are going to be a lot of housing that people are going to need. I would think land developers could be a big winner on this. Why not help contribute to the uh, cost of this deal? Uh, skeptics may say they get would then get preferential treatment. Ul ulterior motives here. Yeah, I mean, that's fair enough. The fact that the list is being published means we've got some transparency in all of this, and I like that, even to the extent of where the money is being spent. I like that idea. I don't think the city is trying to hide anything specific. At this moment, as far as I understand it, they've kept uh, the actual bid package itself closed. They will maybe release it once Amazon uh, puts them on the short list or not. But I think, I think transparency is not a bad thing. And remember, I know what you're saying. Do you get a front-of-the-line pass by contributing to this? But on the other hand, the more we can get the private sector to contribute, it's less from the public sector. It helps the taxpayers out. So I'm a little more circumspect on this, again, because the amounts of money are small. If we were spending millions of dollars, then I'd be a little more worried. But $10,000 or $20,000 for many businesses is just not significant money. Uh, surprised at how this came out with the amount that did or did not contribute. How, how, do, you, what's your point, how do you feel yeah. about that in, in, in whether we did get the support that uh, they expected? Well, they were hoping for 250 and they got 175 That's Let's look at that as a glass two-thirds full. I think that's great, uh, and I think there's possibility of a little bit more. Our city manager said very clearly there was a cap on the bid at 500000 We didn't exceed the cap. That's great. Uh, and so, you know, I think in terms of buying a ticket in the lottery and participating in the lottery, I, I'm very happy with the way it worked out. I still think our odds are stacked against us. Uh, the biggest problem, I think, with our bid is that it's a regional bid. It's not quite clear from Amazon that that's what they were looking for. I think they were really looking for a metropolitan area that truly had that million people, not something that you could put a rope around and say, well, if you include all of these other territories, we get to a million. But if this is a catalyst to us updating our materials and, and positioning ourselves better to attract new businesses, it could pay off in just landing one more business. If we were to get just one more thing like the Canada Bread Factory or even the Tim Hortons Roasting Facility, one more of those would, would pay for this all in spades. So in your opinion, money well spent? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I would have rather seen it as part of a regular budgeting process. This was rushed. It was a one-off. It was triggered by, by a, a gold rush from Amazon that probably isn't really there. I think there's a lot of fool's gold in this gold rush. But regardless of what motivated it, I think these were actions that need to be done and things that we can reuse going forward. So I feel good about it, yes. Uh, what can the city learn from this experience? 
Well, I'm not sure, to be candid. I've never, uh, and, uh, and I, I make this sound like I'm an old person, but I'm approaching 60. So in my 60 years on the planet, I have never seen any business do what Amazon did. Normally, these things are all very quiet and behind the scenes. In fact, representatives of the company don't even identify who the company is. They'll just call it Company X because they're always afraid, of course, that land prices will get bid up and, and so on and so forth. To have this very public call for proposals uh, in North America, which attracted deals also, I should point out, from Mexico as well, people in Mexico interested to host this facility. I've never seen that before, and I don't think we'll ever see it again. So I'm not sure what we can learn from it. This was probably a once-in-a-lifetime activity. But what we can learn, nonetheless, is as they release their uh, short list, I'm sure they'll feed back to these uh, different cities what was good, what was bad, what they need to change. Even that information, to hear what a Seattle-based company looks at Hamilton from a distance and what it sees as its good points and bad points, that could be very illustrative as well. You talked about Amazon and how most of the time these sort of things are done behind closed yep. doors. What's this whole exercise? What's in it for them? <laughs> like, is this just PR? Is this, look how, uh, you know, how attractive we are? It's, it's, it's much like the announcement of a new Apple phone. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got two different answers for you here. So the the first is that when we think of these big tech giants, Facebook, uh, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, um, we, we, we think of them as giants, and generally speaking, we think of them as loving giants. So Facebook's heart is in the right spot. Google's heart is in the right spot. The problem is that Mr. Bezos, who is the leader and owner of, uh, of uh, Amazon, He's just not a warm, cuddly guy, and and Amazon is actually seen as as kind of an evil force out there in the technology world. Uh, you hear many retailers, for instance, afraid of Amazon, and Amazon makes no bones about it. It would love to drive drive all retailers out of existence and and be just the store in the future. So I think in, in that negative context, this PR exercise is trying to buy them some goodwill. And, and at least, uh, even though they're going to create 237 losers and only one winner, nonetheless, the process opens the door and speaks to our, our aspirations. And so I think it's that. Now, the other thing to note, though, is that not everyone's playing the game this way. Microsoft last week, just last week, announced plans for its campus uh, that's in Redmond, Washington. That's a suburb of, of Seattle. And they've made it very clear that they aren't moving, that they are going to redevelop the campus. Yes, they're going to spend a billion-plus dollars in tearing down some buildings and building new buildings and redesigning this campus. But they came out very clearly in their proposal and said, we don't like the way Amazon did this. We don't think that's fair to all these communities. We've made the choice, and our choice is to stay where we are. So, again, two different companies, two different approaches. Microsoft probably feeling it doesn't need the good PR, whereas Google, or, excuse me, Amazon desperate to get some good news stories written about it. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Scott, just one more footnote, if I may. Yeah. Last week, Amazon also announced that all these drones that were going to fly over the world and deliver all their products, the new drones they're designing are self-destructive. In other words, if they ever get into trouble, they'll destruct before they hit anything. I think they think that's good news, makes us feel better about them, but I don't know. I'm worried about self-destructing drones flying all over the world, too. So we don't worry. We don't have to worry about getting hit in the head with a drone, but just the shrapnel that just flies shrapnel, off it. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, that does like make your cowbell. There you go. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A new poll, of which we're going to talk about a, a couple of these today. This one, uh, a new poll by Echoes Research Associates, 
uh, for the Canadian press, uh, said 69% of those surveyed think there should be a total ban on guns in urban areas. To talk more about all of this, the president of the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights, uh, Rod Giltaka, and he is with us now. Rod, thanks very much for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. So uh, do you think there is a demand in the area or, or a demand in the country, a call for greater gun control? Um, you know, I, it's not really the conclusion that I got from the poll, to be honest. In fact, the, the only conclusion I, I got from that poll, and, then, and certainly the way that it was worded, was that the average Canadian has no factual understanding of this topic. In fact, the poll itself, Scott, reinforces what we already knew, which was that private firearm ownership and, let's say, the cause of gun violence is probably the least understood social issue in our, in our society. You bring up a fascinating point. So what don't we know? What don't we know about guns, the average person? Well, I think I could sum it up in two easy questions. Um, if you were to stop someone on the street and you said to them, let's, let's say in an urban area to, be, to connect a little bit closer with this poll, uh, if you stop someone on the street and you said, hey, do you think we should reduce re- regulation on, uh, on handguns? You know, I think most people would say, no, we don't need to reduce restrictions on handguns. There's enough handgun crime as it is. And then if you followed up and you said, well, do you know what the current restrictions are? They would most likely say no. So therein really lies the problem is people just don't know what's, you know, what the uh, what the law currently is or what effect it would have on, on gun violence. That being said, you know, they do see the crime. They uh, do hear about it. They do know guns are involved. So mm-hmm. is any gun too many? Well, I think that, uh, again, the, the key to answering those questions are furthering people's knowledge. So 2% of violent crime uh, involves a firearm in Canada. And in fact, if you even look at the uh, firearm-related homicide rate, uh, it's about 160 people that are, are killed with a gun in homicide per year in Canada. It's coincidentally around the same number of people injured by lightning in Canada. So despite the, the sensationalism uh, that's associated with, with gun crime, it's not a serious, a serious problem, let's say it's cancer or heart disease or any of that kind of stuff. So we really need to, if we really are serious about solving the problem, we need to look at the root causes of gun violence who is doing the shooting? Certainly not licensed gun owners or gangs. So I'd say we actually have a gang problem than we have actually a gun problem. Um, some may say, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, some may mm-hmm. say that's just shoving the problem off to somebody else. To the people that are doing the shooting? Uh, well, to, uh, you know, it's not, it's, that, that's like saying it's not guns that kill people. It's people that kill people. And this isn't a gun issue. This is a gang issue. Well... So you can also say it's a crime issue. People use guns to commit a crime. It's not the guns, it's the crime. That's the problem. I mean, that's just moving it from one social circle to another, isn't it? Okay, well, no, actually, and this, and this, is, this has turned out to be a great discussion, and this is the discussion. That well, of course happen. it's a great right? discussion, Ron. It's <laughs> happening on my show. Well, and that's go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm happy to be here. No, I think, I think what people don't understand is they're only getting snippets, right, from yeah. the media, because there's not a lot of time to really explore these issues. But what, what people really need to understand, if we want to make it quick, is that we're really talking about violent behavior, because there are, we think there's up to 20 million guns in Canada, right? And the majority of them are owned by licensed gun owners. And we know that licensed gun owners are not a threat to public safety. So what's really a problem is violent behavior involving firearms. So as I said, 2% of violent crime involves a firearm. The overwhelming majority, like 95% of those people, do not have a license. 
So we're really talking about people in unauthorized possession of a firearm and further regulation on actual licensed gun owners doesn't have any effect on the behavior of, of criminals that are shooting each other. So what are the true causes of violence? This is what we really need to, to tackle. And that's poverty, unemployment, socioeconomic status, declining moral structure, culture, stuff like that. And in fact, uh, CBC did a, um, a, a mini series called Under the Gun. And it was the only time I actually saw someone stumble upon the actual solution. And they did, uh, they did the story about a suburb of, uh, I believe it was Ottawa, where they had a, a, a gang violence and gun problem. It took 10 years of social programs and after school programs and, and stuff like this in the community and their gun violence problem disappeared. And uh, you can find that, that episode on the internet. And, you know, the problem with that solution is it takes more than four years to implement it. Mm. Uh, I'm reading from the Canadian press here. Stats released last month showed that uh, 2016 was the first time since 2012 that shootings were the most common method of homicide in Canada. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stats Canada also reported that 2016 was the third year in a row that the number of firearm-related homicides rose. That being said, we are starting to see a bit of an increase. Would you not say that? Well, we're we're seeing an increase in crime generally. So, of course, that that would go up. But again, shootings, the most common of homicide. That's the stat I'm talking about. And that is rising for the first time uh, since 2012. Right. So the devil in that detail is who is doing the shooting. And that and that's what I would I would really, to be honest, like I'm not, you know, I'm not in this business for to, to virtue signal. I'm in this business to reduce gun violence and mm-hmm. to make sure that we're doing it in the right way. Right. So the real devil in the detail is who is actually doing these shootings. And if we find out, and which I, we already know, but. I'd like to see the government compile some some numbers on this. Who's doing the shooting? Are these licensed gun owners? And if not, what regulations or what efforts need to be put forward to reduce the shootings that are committed by this group? If it's not gun owners, then don't put further restrictions on gun owners because that's just disingenuous and ineffective. Putting more restrictions on gun owners, will that keep guns out of the hands of criminals in some way? Less guns out there, they don't break in, they don't steal them, all that sort of stuff. Well... Not at all, because you're you're dealing with, and I think this is a condition of people not, that don't understand who the people are that are shooting. We're talking about criminals who are inherently um, irrational, impulsive people that have no respect for the law. So no matter where they get the guns, if they, they trade drugs for them to get them from the United States, if they break into gun owners' homes, if they steal them from the police, if they're left behind by police, you know, whatever happens, they, guns are out there. There's tens of millions of guns out there. And they will get a hold of them and they'll use them no matter what regulations are on the books. So we need to reduce violent behavior and violent crime if you want to see these numbers come down. Is this a knee-jerk reaction to what is happening in the United States? Every, every gun debate in Canada is a knee-jerk reaction to what happens in the United States. I mean, you and I had a conversation, um, uh, I think about a year and a half ago, when the, when the shooting happened uh, in Orlando at the nightclub. And... You know, every time there's a shooting in the United States, it sparks a gun debate in Canada. And, and as, as I said, I mean, our, our gun crime numbers are incredibly low. Like we are very fortunate in Canada and yet there's lots of guns. So what's the difference? It's 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 largely a, a cultural and socioeconomic difference in Canada. So that's the debate, really. Where are the guns coming from that are used to commit the crimes here if there's so many? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because just a few years ago, I had a study from uh, NWEST, which is um, the National Weapons Enforcement Team, and it said that uh, 90, I think it was 96 or 98% of the guns found uh, by Vancouver City Police 
uh, in, you know, guns that were illegally held came from the United States. And then there was a, um, a largely debunked, um, quote unquote, uh, study that said that 60% of the guns came from that were sourced domestically. So I don't think we really have reliable numbers on that. But nonetheless, no matter how people are getting guns, no matter where they're coming from, they're being used in an illegal manner. It's always been illegal to, to assault people with firearms or to shoot them or to discharge firearm in an area where it can't be legally and safely discharged. These, all, these are all laws on the books that we can, we can uh, you know, use against people that do these things. Uh, you touched on this. What data is available as, a, as far as when a gun crime is committed, where the gun originated from or how much you can trace the gun? Uh, do we know any information on that? There's not a lot of information there, but where I draw a lot of my conclusions is from StatsCan. StatsCan keeps numbers on a lot of this stuff, and I always encourage people to go to StatsCan, and uh, there's a couple of studies. There's the, the study on domestic violence every year, domestic and family violence, and there's a study on homicide. And then there, in 2012, there was also a study on firearms and violent crime, and if you look through that, if you take the time, you know, which is a tall order for most people because we're busy. But if you take the time and really look into that kind of stuff, you really get a clear picture about what's going on in Canada and how how um, how rare these occurrences really are. And there's actually a, a website that we sponsored and built called gundebate.ca where we have videos and we link to the stats can studies and stuff. It's a great resource for people to know more. How much do we know? Uh, you talked about gangs earlier. How much do we know about where those guns are coming from? Well, like I said, it's just, it's, there, there was a study recently that tried to say that uh, the majority of these crime guns were domestically sourced. And then there were stories floating around looking at the numbers that were behind the actual uh, paper that kind of debunked what the conclusion was. And unfortunately, a lot of these studies um, depend on the way that the questions are phrased and the way that the numbers are interpreted. So for a quick example is stats can when they say, uh, let's say in domestic violence, how many domestic, what's the percentage of domestic violence calls uh, where a firearm is present? It's less than 1%, mm-hmm. whereas a lot of people have the idea that, you know, domestic violence is a, is a reason to have gun control, where in fact, almost never is there a firearm present during these domestic violence calls. But at the same time, firearm present, that includes, according to StatsCan, if someone had a gun in a gun safe and the police, you know, showed up because there was a disagreement, they would actually call that firearm present. So are we really understanding what the facts are on the ground um, and how to solve these problems without really looking into it? That's, that's my assertion, right? What more can we do to stop guns coming in from the United States where it is obviously a lot easier to get them? Well, interestingly, what can we do to stop gun violence in general, including guns coming across the border? You know, the, uh, the Liberal Party of Canada came, had a gun platform. And I'm going to be honest, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pull any punches. It's largely just, you know, fluff, as most of these measures are. You know, oh, we're going to make gun owners have an extra piece of paper when they transport their gun to the shooting range. It's like ridiculous stuff, right? Um, but the one thing that would have really helped, um, which they did two-thirds of what their promise was, was to provide more funding to support guns and gangs units and to, um, and to help border uh, protection to you know increase border protection to stop these guns from coming across. Attacking gangs is the way to reduce these numbers ninety percent, and and that's not a, even a controversial thing to say. That's where we need to. That's where we need to be. If they're not using guns, what else are they using to kill people with? Hands, 
pans and clubs and pipes. Just whatever's and at your, yeah, whatever's at your disposal. Well, of course, you know, it's funny. I did an interview a little while back when Surrey had the spate of gun shootings um, or sorry, gang shootings. And I think in, in the span of what was it like uh, 40 days or something, there's 33 shootings like, you know, where shots were fired between uh, when we had a gang war. And, you know, the, the, the idea, the implication is, is that gun owners that don't want further regulations on themselves somehow don't care about gun violence. And, and it's just completely insane. I mean, nobody wants to see anybody shot. But it's I think it's it's a more of a matter of people like me, people that really understand this issue that have put, you know, thousands, literally thousands of hours of research and debate into this. We want real solutions. We don't want, you know, broad, you know, from the CCFR having to take an extra piece of paper to the range. And that's your answer to gun violence. We really want to see solutions. So that's why we make ourselves available as a resource. Um, let's, how do you get a gun legally in Canada? Because again, um, some of these stories that are coming across from the United States, Las Vegas, for example, perfect example of people who just, uh, you know, uh, amount, uh, a vast array of, of munitions and, and, and snap and go nuts and commit these sorts of crimes. Uh, and we hear more about availability, whether it's at gun shows, this, that, or the other. How do you legally purchase a gun in Canada? And let's go with two types. Is if you were to buy a hunting rifle and go out on the farm somewhere, or is if you were to buy a handgun, what, what do you need to do? So, long question, but if I were to paraphrase it, uh, to boil it down really uh, uh, really simply, um, one thing I would say quickly is there we have videos that, that explainer videos, highly, you know, would very well produce explainer videos on gundebate.ca that would answer that question. But there's two, uh, there's two types of classifications. If you want to get a hunting rifle, they're typically non-restricted. You'd have to take a, a safety course, pass it with 80% or more, uh, fill out an application, including, you know, with all kinds of personal information, including your conjugal partners for the last two years and their contact information and just medications you're on, all kinds of stuff. Um, and then you can buy non-restricted firearms. So typically long guns for a hunting or sporting purpose. Um, as long as you hold in Canada, as long as you hold that PAL, you'll be actually, uh, you'll have a background check run on you. What well, equates to a background check run on you every day for the rest of your life. Um, you're scrutinized more than any other citizen in Canada. Uh, as long as you have that license and it's actually a CPIC check. It's not really a background check, but it's a it's a check like you were being investigated for a criminal offense every single day you run through the system. When it comes to restricted firearms, all largely the same thing. It's an extra day of training and an extra, uh, extra um, um, exams. And then you also have uh, to have registered firearms um, if, uh, if you have restricted firearms. And, of course, all the extra scrutiny that, that comes with that. And there's safe storage, transportation, handling and display laws that are associated with that. So it's it's pretty stringent. And, um, and I think the system's doing everything it can just from the licensing perspective. And what about handguns? So interestingly enough, handguns are, what is it? I think they're the number one firearm used in, in crimes Mm -hmm. and handguns have been registered in Canada since 1934. So I I can't think of a more, uh, a more clear example of how uh, um, registering firearms really has no effect on criminal activity, but that's, yeah, that's that's the situation with handguns. So, how do you obtain uh, a license to get a handgun? So, two days, two day safety course, right? All the all the background checks, continuous eligibility screening, which is what that daily check is called, um, and then you have to uh, buy a gun. It has to be transferred, registered in your name. You have to have a special permit, basically, to get 
the gun back to your home, and then you can take it to and from a shooting range, to and from a gunsmith, to and from a border crossing if you're competing. You still need extra paperwork for the United States. Uh, to and from uh, a peace officer to dispose of the firearm or to have it verified. And, uh, and that's what you're allowed to do with that handgun. You can't shoot it out in the bush or anything like that. And you can't take it anywhere other than a range-type facility. Yeah, you have to or be going a, to and from a specific place, right? Right. Yeah, and it's always been like that. Uh, well, since the 70s. Talk a little bit about the safety course. What's entailed with that? You said it's two days? It's two days if you want to get both licenses. Right. I'm an instructor with the RCMP Canadian Firearms Program. I've run actually 3,500 people through that course. Mm-hmm. doing it next weekend. If you want to come out to BC, Scott, we'll run you through. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, any excuse to get to BC, I'll go. Uh, <laughs> anyway, sorry you were saying I interrupted. Yeah, and the course is a lot of fun. There's a lot of information there. But basically, you have to, um, for that, it's it's a two-day safety course. You have to pass two written exams with 80% or greater, and you have to pass two um, practical exams. So you physically have to show to show how to unload, load a, a variety of different firearms, how to demonstrate proper safety, how to dictate back to the instructor what the actual laws are to understand the, the you know, the penalties if you contravene those laws, understand you know, um, range rules, all this stuff, and you have to pass with 80% or more. And then you can, that gets you to the point, Scott, where you can apply for a license. And then you have to go through the motions with the government, which can take anywhere from three to six months to get that license. What about storage of guns in your home? And can you take them out? Can you take them out for reasons such as you feel threatened? That's, that's, a, that's a tough one. So in, in, in Canada, there's a variety of different ways we do have um, storage laws, so there's a variety of regulations, so it would be a long discussion to tell you about all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, the most stringent are with restricted firearms, so those would be handguns and then certain short semi-automatic rifles. Um, but uh, as far as self-defense with a firearm, it can, be, it can be done, but it's very complex in Canada. So what the bureaucracy would tell you is that uh, protection of life Using a firearm is not appropriate, mm-hmm. um, but the Firearms Act itself tells you that that is okay. In sections, I believe, uh, 27, 100, 117, if memory serves me correctly, it says that, self, you know, that protection of life is a legitimate reason to have a firearm, yet the bureaucracy tells you it's not. So it's a little bit of a, it's a little schizophrenic as far as how we, we deal with that topic in Canada. Only got about 30 seconds left. Who's buying? Who's jumping on board? Who's doing this? Doing what? Having a gun, playing around, target practice, that sort of thing. Because really, you know, I mean, other than a collector, that's why you're using it. That's why you're having it. Who, who's purchasing these? Well, we're seeing a huge resurgence in firearm ownership. The most, the most rapidly growing demographic is women hmm. in the sport, which is, which is fantastic. And the more people that own firearms, the, the better understanding that we have, because we tend to see that the people that are opposed to private firearm ownership are typically the people that have never seen a gun. And of course, that in itself is, is an issue. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's getting more popular every day. What does the U.S. need to do? That's tough because the U.S. does have background checks, including at gun shows. It's a very, very common misconception. Um, it's, there's some things in the, that the U.S. does better than we do, and there's some things that we do better than the U.S. I don't think anybody has all the answers, to be honest with you. It's just, it's a really compact, complex question, and it doesn't actually have everything to do with guns. There's a lot of other factors of this, of this equation. 
Rod Giltaka has been with us, president of Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Uh, according to a new ECOS Research uh, and Associates poll, 69% of those surveyed think there should be a total ban on guns in urban areas. However, the definition uh, really isn't. Uh, I, I don't think we can agree on that. Uh, Rod, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me, Scott. Anytime. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Time for uh, another edition of uh, This Week in Trump. And it's only Monday. Uh, but gee whiz, it was a busy weekend for the president. Uh, Friday revealed that Michael Flynn had pled guilty to lying to the FBI and agreed to cooperate uh, in the Mueller investigation. Uh, this resulted in a tweet from Trump saying he never asked uh, the former FBI director, James Comey, to stop investigating Flynn. Uh, and that's just the tip of this iceberg uh, over the weekend. To talk more about all of this, Claire Finkelstein is with us, professor of law and philosophy, University of Pennsylvania Law School, and is on the line with us now. Claire, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Of course. Can you explain to us in layman's terms why this tweet about the FBI could incriminate uh, Donald Trump? What it suggests is that President Trump was aware that Michael Flynn lied to the FBI at the time that he went to Director Comey and put pressure on him to drop the investigation into Flynn. So in other words, he was aware that in all likelihood, the FBI had a case against Flynn in reality, and he was aware of the subject matter of the lie at the time that he went around trying to pressure people to drop the investigation. Supposedly, he pressured them to drop the investigation because there was nothing there. But what this tweet suggests is that he was aware, in fact, that he had lied to the FBI in advance. And that would quite arguably constitute obstruction of justice. So how does this tweet, how will this tweet change things for Donald Trump, or will it? I think it's put the spotlight on his potential knowledge of an involvement with the entire scenario, starting with the discussions that Michael Flynn was having with Kislyak. And in fact, on the timeline, as we now understand it, partly because of emails and contacts that were that also came to light among the members of the transition team over the weekend, it became clear that Flynn was not acting on his own. It was not a, a member of the transition team going rogue and just calling up his pals in the Kremlin, it appears that Flynn was checking in with members, senior members of the transition team, both before and after he made the initial phone call and then when he called Kislyak back a second time to discuss the lifting of sanctions were Trump to become president. Hmm. Now, what's fairly clear is that the lifting of sanctions then was the quid in the quid pro quo of Russia's doing something for the Trump campaign, most likely assisting them with the election. So it very much looks as though there was a deal being cut here between uh, the lifting of sanctions for the Kremlin uh, in exchange for uh, or as a as a payback for the assistance that they had been rendering during the campaign and that the president was very likely aware of that deal. So uh, if this if these allegations are proven to be true, we will, in the end, find out if the president knew about it or not through the timeline. 
that's very likely that we will. However, there's another aspect besides obstruction of justice that this also highlights, which is that, as it seems, members of the transition team were busy discussing the lifting of sanctions and as we have uh, one of the emails suggesting from uh, McFarlane that, in fact, there was a worry that Russia would be disenchanted because they had assisted in the election. The worry, then, is that, in fact, the entire transition team was supporting and encouraging Flynn to lie when he had his conversations with the FBI. Hmm. If that's the case, it's more than just obstruction of justice. The president could be guilty of suborning perjury since Flynn spoke to the FBI under oath. And when you encourage someone to commit a crime, which Flynn has now admitted to committing, you are yourself an accomplice in that crime. So there's a substantive offense here that could start reaching the president as we as more facts unfold besides just his obstruction of justice can he tweet his way out of this using the court of public opinion or eventually will the, un- or eventually will this just catch up to him he'd be very unwise to keep tweeting his lawyers are clearly at their wits end with his unfettered tweets to the point where one of his lawyers was actually willing to claim that he wrote the tweet. Mm. Now, that's a whole separate level of concern and um, possible scandal. It seems very, very unlikely that, in fact, any of his lawyers did write that tweet since it was so unwise legally. Mm. But here, I'm afraid to say the president is sort of uh, darned if he did and darned if he didn't because you don't get out of responsibility for something just because your lawyer is the one who constructed the tweet. In some ways, that could make the situation worse for the president because he can't just say, oh, well, I misremembered or it was an errant remark on my part. Any tweet that was constructed by one member of his legal team is assumed to reflect a well-thought-out legal position. And so it looks very much as though if they are claiming that he was aware of Flynn's lying before he fired Flynn and before he put pressure on Comey, that's really going to stick. I don't see what the president can tweet to get out of that. Uh, So over the course of the weekend, he decides he's going to uh, uh, tweet this infamous tweet with the with the, the letters FBI in them. Uh, he sees the reaction. He sees the media jump on this and, and possibly he incriminating himself uh, in all of this. How does he react? How does he justify this? Does he say it was a mistake? Does he say he misspoke? How does he how does he resolve himself to the fact he may have just incriminated himself? Well, again, his lawyers were peddling as hard as possible to cover up for him. Um, now, Dowd made a pretty serious mistake. What we may see is that he, he may start to shed members of his legal team as he sees that they are not really the bright lights that he had hoped they were. Ty Cobb's statement on Friday was also not helpful to him, and Dowd then uh, greatly compounded the difficulty with his, with his tweet. But clearly, it was an attempt 
to absolve the president um, on the part of his legal team by taking responsibility for these remarks. And it just shows what poor lawyering the president has at the moment, because it's a very unsophisticated sort of ham-fisted attempt to separate the president's own responsibility from the actions that are going on with regard to Trump and other members of the transition team. How is this playing out in the U.S.? How are citizens viewing this? Are they viewing this just as more left-right battling, uh, you know, in politics, or is there more to this? Does this have teeth? I think we have a sense of a ramping up of this investigation. Certainly the, um, the news of the plea deal with Michael Flynn uh, came as a bit of a shock, um, we saw it coming from a distance, but um, it was a bit of a surprise. A number of commentators, myself included, have been complaining that that plea deal was too soft on Flynn. Uh, he could have been charged with anything from kidnapping down to violations of the Foreign Agent Registration Act, um, violations of the Logan Act, uh, possible money laundering. So there were so many crimes that he could be charged with to see a plea deal this light suggests that Robert Mueller must feel that he is a very, very useful witness. I think that's the mm. only way to explain it and that he is in full cooperation mode. Therefore, we are all sort of on pins and needles waiting to, to see uh, the other shoe drop because it really looks as though Mueller has his finger on the pulse with regard to transition team members. Many of us are expecting that Jared Kushner could be the next one to be indicted. And once you're up to Kushner, you're pretty much at the president. Hmm. So this is a very significant development. And I think all everybody is awake <laughs> on the edge of their seats wow. watching to see what will happen next. We uh, it wasn't that long ago that the few the first couple of shoes dropped with Manafort and and Gates. How do you compare that situation to this with Michael Flynn? Is it is it uh, of equal importance? Is one greater than the other? Uh, what does one say about the other? That's a really good question. The interesting thing about the Manafort indictment is it was a kind of shot over Flynn's bow because the indictment. Uh, that could have been filed against Flynn, my guess is would have looked at least as serious as the one that Manafort came in for. So I think that once that indictment of Manafort came down, uh, it was much more likely that Flynn was going to be willing to cooperate. Uh, and there is an interesting parallel, however, between Manafort uh, and Flynn, which is both of them were acting as unregistered uh, advisors to foreign governments, governments whose interests are not terribly aligned with ours. So as you might remember, Manafort was consulting for Ukraine uh, and Flynn was consulting for Turkey, and neither of them complied with the requirements of the Foreign Agent Registration Act or FARA. Uh, and that was one of the charges that Manafort was charged with. My concern is that whole national security piece, because their activities did pose a very significant threat to our national security, in my view, will remain uninvestigated. 
Uh, fortunately, with Manafort, we may see more discussion of it as his trial unfolds. Uh, will we see Flynn uh, with a bail scenario very similar uh, similar to what Manafort is, is experiencing now? I think it's very unlikely. I'd be very surprised if Flynn ended up doing any jail time at all. Simply because and he's cooperating? Simply because he's cooperating. Now, my guess is that Mueller has agreed not to prosecute him for certain crimes, but has held back on such a deal with regard to other crimes. So as the facts come out, it may be that uh, Robert Mueller still has a kind of sword of Damocles hanging over Flynn's head and that he will continue to expect uh, cooperation from him in an ongoing way, in addition to whatever cooperation he's already received. There could then, if for any reason Flynn decides not to cooperate, be new charges and therefore ramping up of uh, an indictment and, and therefore possible uh, sentence. But from this sentence, from this uh, guilty plea alone, and the sentencing could take quite a while, so we won't know for a little while. My guess is you're going to you're not going to see anything like the statutory maximum of five years imprisonment that would be allowed under this uh, conviction. Uh, what if the president is charged? What if this investigation does lead to an obstruction of justice charge for him? What next? Where does that leave him? Well, there are two very interesting questions here. So uh, the first is whether or not the president will not now try to fire Robert Mueller before that comes down. Uh, I don't think that firing Mueller would in any way uh, halt the investigation, but he may attempt to do that, in which case, in my view, he will only be deepening his risk of being found uh, to be obstructing justice. Uh, on the other side, if Mueller remains and we don't end up in a total downward spiral of uh, legal crisis here, then we may find charges against the president and it may end up in the courts. The question will be whether or not a sitting president can be indicted. It will also be a question whether or not charges against the president would finally prompt Congress to act on impeachment. Hmm. Though, as you know, impeachment doesn't have to be reflective of an underlying crime. Uh, Congress could act any time uh, just judging that the president was uh, dangerous in his handling of national security matters, for example, um, or just unfit to continue as president for any reason. Uh, in all likelihood, since Congress has shown itself by and large supportive of him, or at least really unwilling to take him on head on, uh, it will require something like an indictment coming down from Mueller's office uh, for this to proceed and really place the president in jeopardy. Uh, a listener writes, he may be charged with something because he's stupid, but there's no quid pro quo. Do you really believe that Trump said, I'll give the Russians something if they help me get elected? It really looks like that. Increasingly, it looks like that. Um, Michael Flynn, surely, we now know, did not act alone. He was in constant communication with the senior members of the transition team. 
So there was a deal being hammered out between the transition team and the Russians around the sanctions. Now, what we don't have adequate evidence on right now is what all the parameters of that deal were like. Uh, was this payback for past assistance? Was there a prospective deal um, in the offing? But the information that came out this past weekend about communications among senior transition officials very strongly suggests that there was a kind of explicit uh, deal around assistance in getting elected um, and that sanctions, lifting these rather minor sanctions, I might add, was just kind of the tip of the iceberg of what might be felt to be owed to the Kremlin on the part of the Trump transition team. Claire, we've only got about a minute left, just under a minute. Uh, sexual allegations. Will these come back to haunt Trump? Uh, Billy Bush came out this weekend and said, no, the tape's real. We were all there. Uh, he has fully endorsed, endorsed Roy Moore. Where is that going? I don't see it coming back to haunt the president at the moment, despite the fact that the rather um, unfettered remarks that, in fact, he wasn't the one who made those comments in the uh, in the film, uh, in the footage, is astounding, given that we all saw it, we all believe it. That's where people uh, looked at those remarks and started saying, you know, is the president in his right mind? Yeah. Never mind impeachment. You know, let's talk about 25th Amendment. Uh, is he himself delusional? Does he actually believe that he didn't make those remarks? Uh, we know that he made them. Um, his endorsement of Roy Moore, I don't see in terms of sexual harassment, but much more in terms of his ongoing relationship with Steve Bannon uh, and his desire to play to his uh, quite right-wing base. Uh, and I think um, with all that's going on with the Russia probe, it will take too long for any of the sexual mm. harassment um, remarks or lies to catch up with him since he's, he's got bigger wor worries really right now. Claire Finkelstein has been with us, professor of law and philosophy, University of Pennsylvania Law School. Claire, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks so much. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.